0: That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. It's been a long day. Travel at work, stuck in traffic, family drama. You get home, open your front door, and see your dog's wagging tail. They press against your legs, feet tip-tapping on the floor. As you rub their ears, your frustration melts. If you're most people, you're picturing a Labrador Retriever, a fluffy, loyal, sometimes mischievous pup, who's always there to play fetch or cuddle after a bad day. Most people don't think of a shepherd mix who saved 50 people, a Newfoundland who helped create the map of America, or the Huskies who starred in the Cuba Gooding Jr. Classic, Snow Dogs. Through millennia, Dogs have evolved to be our best friends. But some dogs go beyond the calls of sit, roll over, and stop chasing the Amazon delivery guy. This podcast is about those very good dogs. Welcome to Dog Tales, a podcast Original. Every week, we tell the stories of historic, heroic canines We'll profile dogs who save people from earthquakes, went to outer space, and even spurred the invention of Velcro. If you're looking for fun stories and a warm heart, you're barking up the right tree. I'm your host, Alistair. You can find episodes of Dog Tales and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Dog Tales for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dog Tales in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Today, our focus is a German shepherd named Buddy. Most of you are picturing a male dog right now, but actually Buddy was a girl and her unusual name might be the least interesting part of her story. Born on Fortunate Fields Farm in Mont Switzerland, Buddy was a 1920s working dog. She was a German Shepherd that was bred to help soldiers win wars, police officers track criminals, and the Red Cross save lives. But Buddy's destiny was life-saving of a different sort she became America's first seeing-eye-dog. When Buddy first met Morris Frank, she was not enthused. The American smelled weird and he ran out of treats very quickly. Buddy remained friendly but wary, relying on her sense of smell, 10,000 times better than a human's, and her extremely strong hearing which could detect anything from an oncoming earthquake to Morris's heartbeat. They were both nervous as she sniffed him, getting familiar. Then, he tried to put her leather harness on her. But instead of the swift manoeuvre she was used to, he poked her in the eye. She whined and he jerked away, more sensitive to sound than her masters. Maybe they did have something in common. Morris reached out again. The strap caught on her muzzle. Had he even met a dog before? After a few more minutes of awkward maneuvering, the harness was finally on. Buddy wagged her tail at him. Time for a walk? But Morris just sat there. She nudged him. Let's go outside. He stayed in place, unconfident. Buddy sat patient. She didn't know it, but she'd been picked for this role precisely because of her patience and tolerance. She also didn't know that this was the beginning of the biggest relationship of her life, that she'd bond with Morris in a way no other animal, not even a great ape, could. And Buddy definitely didn't know that Morris Frank would one day say, quote, As surely as those pioneers who discovered lands and ideas for the world, Buddy rediscovered the world for blind people. All she knew was that Morris Frank needed her help, and she was going to do her best to provide it. Born in 1908, Morris Frank was just like his mother, Jessie. Sadly, when Morris was three, Jessie was thrown from a horse. She'd already lost sight in one eye years earlier during childbirth, and after this second accident, Jessie fully lost her vision. In 1924, Morris took a hit during a boxing match with a friend. Pain burst through his head, and the world went dark. It never grew light again. As we said, Morris Frank was just like his mother. Despite his blindness, Morris still attended Vanderbilt, working as a piano tuner and insurance salesman on the side. He was determined to have the life he planned for himself. Blindness just meant he required extra assistance, so the Franks hired help for Morris. But this wasn't the easy fix it sounded like. Morris described his helper as unsympathetic, which is putting it nicely. The helper attended classes alongside Morris, when he remembered. He went on insurance sales calls and talked over Morris. He kept Morris from tripping on the sidewalk if he was paying attention. Morris was from a wealthy family, but clearly no amount of money could keep him safe, and he had very little expectation of a future wife or children who could help him. Morris could only take a girl on a double date since he required a friend to guide him. So Morris's already limited options were even more limited. By age 19, Morris Frank was fed up. One afternoon, as his unreliable guide walked him home from the insurance office, Morris heard the yells of a paperboy. Not an unusual sound on the streets of Nashville in 1927, except the yells were addressed at him. Apparently, the paperboy thought Morris would appreciate one of the articles in the Saturday Evening Post. According to Dixon Hartwell's book, Dogs Against Darkness, Morris didn't know if it was curiosity or self-defense that drove him to buy the paper. For all he knew, it was just a sales tactic. Either way, Morris soon found himself sitting in his living room listening to his father read an article titled, The Seeing Eye. The piece described a blind man as pathetic, shorn, prey and at the mercy of all he comes in contact to. And that's only in the first two sentences. While this was a common sentiment at the time, it couldn't have felt good. Luckily, Morris's father kept reading, getting to the much kinder heart of the story. The writer, Dorothy Harrison Eustis, detailed a program the German government had set up. The program paired World War I veterans blinded by mustard gas exposure with dogs trained to guide them to be their eyes. As his father finished reading, Morris was floored. Wheels spun in his head. Could he help bring this program to America? How did one adopt one of these incredible dogs did it truly work as well as the article claimed? Morris wrote to the journalist, Dorothy Harrison Eustace, immediately, posting his letter on November 9, 1927. He had no idea he was about to change the American perception of blind people forever. He also had no idea that Dorothy Harrison Eustace wasn't actually a journalist. She was an heiress by birth, an expat by choice, and a German Shepherd breeder by passion. She lived on a Swiss estate with her family, her business partner, and approximately a hundred German shepherds. Her life's mission was to breed and train these dogs to be useful. Useful was one of Dorothy's favourite words, according to her biographer, Miriam Mascarelli. Previously, useful had meant helping the Red Cross, the local police and the Swiss and Italian armies. Dorothy's dogs worked in search and rescue, as international messengers and as security guards. To improve her business, Dorothy and her husband George travelled around Europe, observing dogs and learning about various training methods. On a trip to Germany, they visited Potsdam, where Dorothy first saw blind veterans partnered with guide dogs. She wrote, The one quick glimpse of the crying need for guidance and companionship in the lonely, all-enveloping darkness stood out clearly before my swimming eyes. To think that one small dog could stand for so much in the life of a human being, not only in his usual role as companion, but as his eyes, sword, shield and buckler. Suddenly, useful had a new meaning. Guiding the Blind. Dorothy was obsessed. So when the Saturday Evening Post approached her to write about her work at Fortunate Fields, she sent them something a little different. Dorothy wrote about the useful, incredible German dogs in the very article that spurred the letter from Maurice Frank, The Seeing Eye. Dorothy was inundated with mail. Her article had done the 1927 equivalent of going viral. But Morris Frank's letter caught her heart. Perhaps because Morris didn't simply ask for a dog, but asked how he could help. Dorothy wrote back, filled with sympathy. She trained dogs, sure, but not dogs for the blind. And 1927 wasn't a great year for sending disabled Americans into Germany as the Nazis were slowly gaining power. However, Dorothy did have several well-trained German Shepherds, and she couldn't stop herself from offering Morris a dog. And, she wrote, if Morris was willing to come to Switzerland, her husband George and colleague Jack would try to train Morris to work with the dog. Jack's brother was blind, so he was familiar with the help required. It would be a moonshot, a grand experiment, None of them had ever trained a guide dog partnership before, but they were willing to try, so long as Morris was truly committed. Dorothy would be in the States for Christmas in a few weeks and would follow up with a phone call then. About two weeks later, Morris received a telegram. Dorothy would call that night. Bursting with anticipation, Morris sat by the phone every jittery breath taking him closer to the dream of independence. He could barely keep still. When the phone rang, he bounced out of his chair. Dorothy spoke softly. Mr. Frank, do you still want to come to Switzerland for your dog? It's a very long trip for a blind boy alone. Morris struggled to speak through his thick emotions. Finally, The words poured out loudly all at once. To Switzerland! To get a dog! Mrs Eustace, to get my independence back, I'd go to hell. Coming up, Maurice Frank travels to Switzerland and begins a grand experiment. Could a dog really be his eyes? Now back to the story. For Christmas in 1927, Maurice Frank received a promise. If he went to Switzerland, Dorothy Harrison Eustace, her husband George, and their business partner, Jack Humphrey, would train one of their German shepherds to be his eyes. However, Morris's friends and neighbours were quick to pass judgment. A blind man travelling across the ocean? Alone? To get a dog? It simply wasn't done, and Nashville High Society made that clear. Even Morris's mother, an advocate for the blind, who'd lost her own sight, had reservations. How would he even get there? It was impossible for a blind man to book solo passage on an ocean liner. What if he fell off the boat? In Switzerland, Dorothy Harrison Eustace was working through those same problems with her secretary, Gretchen Green, and a much more resolute mindset. Now that Morris was on board, Dorothy would do anything to make this work. She was, dare I say, dogged. Gretchen came up with the solution. Send Morris to Switzerland via the American Express Shipping Company. They could skirt legalities by classifying him as a parcel. Dehumanizing? Yes. Necessary even more so. In April 1928, five months after he'd sent his first letter to Dorothy, Morris Frank travelled to New York City and boarded an ocean liner. Once on board, Morris was promptly locked inside his stateroom. He was allowed out only for meals and supervised walks, like a child or small dog. The reception in Switzerland was much warmer. Dorothy, her husband George, animal trainer Jack Humphrey's wife and son, and two dogs, Nugget and Nancy, eagerly greeted Morris. They drove him up Mont Pelerin to their breeding and training grounds, Fortunate Fields. Fortunate Fields boasted majestic views of Lake Geneva and rolling farmland hills. Imagine the sound of music, but instead of a multitude of children, a multitude of German shepherds. And instead of teaching her charges to sing, Dorothy taught them to do police work. Upon arrival at Fortunate Fields, Morris met animal trainer Jack Humphrey. He was described as a Will Rogers type, with self-deprecating humour and an incredible intellect. At the time, he was the only person who'd been brave enough or bored enough To teach a camel to walk backwards. And for the past few months he'd been trying to top that feat by teaching German shepherds to guide the blind. Morris was eager to meet his new guide dog. Was it Nugget? Nancy? No. His dog was not yet selected. Jack and George wanted to spend some time observing Morris, then pick the dog that best suited his personality. It was a thoughtful system, but the last thing Morris wanted to do was wait longer. Dorothy tried to lighten the mood with her favorite joke, but Morris didn't laugh. This concerned her. Was he simply nervous? Did he lack a sense of humor? What if he couldn't bond with the dog? They'd spent so much time considering the personality of dogs, but this whole fraught project could be ruined entirely by the human element. Nevertheless, the trio spent the next 24 hours getting to know Morris Frank and evaluating which dog would be a better fit for the grim but determined Southerner. The next day, Jack and George agreed. The dog for Morris Frank was named kiss. As the only female in a litter of eight pups, she was clever, good-tempered, and unflappable. They'd been training her every day for three months. Decision made. They sat Morris down, and Jack handed him a treat. It was time to meet his dog. Morris asked, is she beautiful? She's a fortunate fields dog, sir. George answered, mildly offended Morris would even ask. Then they left the room and sent in Kiss. Morris listened to the soft panting and tapping of her nails on the hardwood as Kiss approached him, sniffing for the meat. Morris gave her the treat and slowly began to pet the German Shepherd. She was soft and friendly. Petting her helped settle Morris's nerves For a moment. Jack returned, and Morris asked what the dog's name was. Kiss. Kiss. Morris was mortified. Maybe this was a normal dog name in Europe, but he could not imagine walking through the streets of Nashville saying, Kiss? Come kiss. Good girl kiss. This dog was supposed to help him meet women, not send them running. He promptly rechristened her. I'm going to call you Buddy. Before they could begin training in earnest, Jack and George gave Morris a single imperative. Everything hinged on this. He had to earn the dog's love. Maybe he shouldn't have been so quick to rename her. Jack Humphrey explained his ideology to Morris, which he'd go on to promote in his worldwide lectures. The goal starting out was not, quote, to teach the dog to act as a guide, but to teach it that you are a friend. You must arrange the first work in such a manner that everything is pleasant for the dog. Notice that I have not said, so that everything is pleasant for you, but for the dog. To build this bond, man and dog must be together constantly. So Morris would take sole responsibility for Buddy's care. He'd start with learning the basics. Grooming, feeding, taking her outside to ruin the beautiful alpine grass. But Buddy, despite her perfect temperament and intensive training, wasn't exactly willing to go along with Morris's simple commands. He could barely get her harness on, and in almost four years of complete blindness, he'd fallen into the habit of speaking shyly and dispassionately. He was viewed as powerless, so he acted that way. His tone, much like the rest of him, simply wasn't that interesting or pleasant to Buddy. With a dog, tone of voice is everything. According to dog whisperer Cesar Milan, dogs are keenly aware of our emotions. It's imperative a dog has an understanding of how we feel about them, so they know their place in the pack order. This builds off the wolf theory that every dog sees themselves as a wolf, even a Chihuahua or Pekingese. Dogs maintain the wolf pack roles of alpha dog, beta dog, etc., whether they live with other dogs, humans, or even cats. A dog without a clear role in the pack will become anxious, act out, and ignore their masters. And that's what Morris was risking by not being assertive with Buddy. According to Morris, Buddy merely tolerated him at first. In Buddy's defense, she'd had lovely masters in Jack and George. And prior to their training, she'd spent a year with a local Swiss farm family, growing accustomed to all manner of sights, sounds and, most importantly, smells. Buddy had spent most of her life with children, who were excited to laugh and play and sneak her forbidden treats. And Morris, well, He stepped on her paws. He missed her signals. He ran into walls and closed doors. He was a stranger with a strange smell. Their first night together, Morris Frank took his newly minted guide dog Buddy to his bedroom. She curled up on the floor and he curled up in his bed. It got quiet. They were in the same room but a world away. Even after four years, Morris had never grown used to the nightly meeting of silence and darkness, culminating in a desolate ache in his chest. He pulled up his covers and turned over in bed, anxious. Could the training really work? What if Buddy never warmed up to him? Was he resigned to a lifetime of disappointing double dates? He'd kept a stiff upper lip all day, but now it was only Morris, alone with his thoughts. The hope he'd shipped across the ocean had waned in the reality of Switzerland. Turning over again, he heard a small whine, someone else uncomfortable in the night. For the first night since the hospital, he wasn't quite so alone. He had a dog, Morris called to her. Here, buddy. She remained still. He remembered what Jack had said, something about tone, about making your presence a pleasant experience for the dog. He adjusted his pitch, reached a hand off the side of the bed, uttered one more desperate, Here, girl, to the stranger of a dog. This time, she trotted over and rested her big soft head on the bed near his hand he said her name again and she jumped up turned in a circle and laid down next to him breathing slowly for the first time in four years morris frank fell asleep without feeling completely alone but just because buddy had warmed up to him didn't mean she'd be able to give him his independence back. The next morning, Morris and Buddy went right to work, tasked with learning the basics as they developed mutual trust. Jack and George set Morris up with a cane, as well as a new dog handling device developed in Germany by Gerhard Stalling. Instead of a leash, Stalling attached a long, U-shaped leather handle to his guide dogs it was rigid and kept the dog close on its human partner's left side. This way, when the dog halted or turned, the owner felt the cue through the handle immediately. Along with the specific device, there were key words to learn, including basics like left, right, forward, encouragements like Adagel, and the German term Fui Fui used to correct a dog who'd done wrong. With each word, of course, the tone mattered most. After all, you can call your dog a stupid, ugly butt sniffer all you want, but if you do so with the tone and emotion reserved for, who's a good boy, you're a good boy, yes you are, your dog will still know you love them. Likewise, Jack explained that Morris wrote At a girl, gave Buddy cause for concern. She wasn't a tool like his cane. She was sentient receptive to his emotions. He had to treat her right. The training also challenged George and Jack. They loved Kiss, but now that she was Buddy, they had to avoid her, ignore her, and stay far away. The worst thing they could do for Morris was pet his guide dog. It would remove Buddy's motivation to bond with Morris. They had to carefully lower their own energy and address Morris with bland phrases that meant nothing to Buddy, such as, thank your dog, or correct your dog. Once Morris and Buddy had mastered the basic commands, it was time for their first walk. Early one morning, Morris, Buddy and George assembled at the front door of the mansion, and Morris gave the command, forward. Buddy sprang forward, Morris gliding behind, he felt like he was flying. Buddy kept a fast pace, and George followed behind them, encouraging the pair's quick clip across the Swiss mountainside, into a cable car, and two miles through the local town of Vevey. Morris hadn't got that much exercise in years. It was exhausting, exhilarating, and not without some trouble. Jack, George, and Dorothy were concerned about the judgmental looks and comments Morris and Buddy got on the streets of Vevey. Locals weren't afraid to air their opinions. Some accused Morris of enslaving Buddy. Others were outraged Buddy wasn't raising puppies. And some just didn't think Morris should be on a street with this much traffic. Jack, George, and Dorothy tried to brush all concerns aside. Though Morris still struggled, as they explored places beyond fortunate fields, Morris was forced to learn to follow Buddy's direction. If she pulled left, he'd better follow, or he'd find himself bumping into a Swiss local and making a bumbling American apology. If she pulled right, he'd better go right, or he'd trip over a pothole in the road. And if his command of forward was met with stock stillness, he'd better stay still himself or risk being run over by a passing bicycle. This was known as intelligent disobedience, a key part of Jack and George's methodology. Buddy had been trained to ignore commands that might put Morris in danger and act on instinct if she sensed trouble. At least, they'd hoped she had. The only way to know for sure was to test her, something everyone was hesitant to do as it involved deliberately putting Maurice Frank in danger. But as it often does, danger came without invitation. Up next, Buddy's first real test. Now back to the story. As April 1928 rolled into May, the weather in Switzerland was only growing nicer. Maurice Frank... His guide dog in training, Buddy, and their instructor, Jack Humphrey, walked their usual route from the cable car back to Fortunate Fields. It was a mellow day on Mont Pelerin, surrounded by mulberry and malachite hills, alpine lake water placid in the distance. Even Morris was beginning to relax as Buddy led him uphill towards the main road. True to his philosophy, Jack maintained some distance from Morris and Buddy. Jack was proud of how he'd trained Buddy and of the blossoming partnership between man and dog. Jack continued up the hill, Morris's commands to Buddy growing fainter in the distance. They were really starting to operate as a team. A team right in the path of runaway horses. Jack could see the fear in the horse's eyes, the driver's lack of control, the carriage wheel spinning too fast, He knew horses. And he knew these horses would not be stopped. Instinctively, Jack moved out of their stomping, salivating path. But the out of control horses were still going straight towards Morris and Buddy, several feet away from him, out of earshot. Time went into slow motion for Jack. Morris had no idea he was about to be trampled Horses and carriages were normal for this road. There was no way to warn him. Buddy was his only chance. The question hung in the quivering air. Could a dog save a blind man's life? The horses charged by. Jack looked down to see where Morris and Buddy had been seconds ago. They were gone. Several feet away, Buddy tugged Morris up a steep embankment. As she jerked him to the top of the hill, Morris seemed completely baffled, but he followed her. Buddy had saved Morris's life, and Morris had trusted her to do so. The moonshot had worked. Buddy wasn't just a good dog, She was a great seeing eye dog, a hero. Morris and Buddy were ready for the next step, unsupervised daily walks. Jack told Morris to follow the same route around the vey he and George had been taking them on. Buddy knew the path and she'd watch out for him. He'd expect them back in a few hours on the afternoon cable car. So Morris and Buddy began walking alone, growing more comfortable as a unit. The initial fast pace Buddy moved at began to feel normal, then slow. Morris quickly learned he could encourage Buddy to speed it up. And since they had to wait for the cable car anyway, why not grab a beer? Before long, Morris and Buddy could cover the route so quickly, there was time for a second pint. They fell into a happy routine. Every morning, Buddy woke Morris up by licking his face. He took her out for longer walks, ran into fewer walls, stumbled less. Morris was pleasantly surprised when people began to approach him, asking about his dog and making pleasant conversation. This had never happened with a human guide. Buddy had opened up an entire world Morris thought he'd never experience again. A few weeks in, Morris realized he needed a haircut and asked Dorothy if she or someone could take him to the barbershop. Dorothy gave a surprising answer. Take yourself. You have your dog. Morris stammered on. He'd always had people take him places since he went blind. Blind people didn't run errands on their own. They didn't do anything on their own. Didn't he just go to town on his own yesterday? Dorothy countered. He'd have to depart from the established route eventually. From now on, Dorothy said, Buddy would take Morris anywhere he needed to go. Morris nervously agreed. Dorothy supplied directions to the barber shop and off they went. It was one thing to walk a route they were both familiar with. It was another to explore new territory. Later that afternoon, Morris returned, finding Dorothy playing the piano in her music room. The first thing Dorothy noticed was his bright, peeling laughter. Morris described it as his first genuine laugh in four years. Dorothy had never seen Morris so amused and asked what had happened. Morris showed off his fresh haircut. Today, Buddy and I did by ourselves something I needed to. A little, simple, everyday thing. And I knew for the first time since I got here that I'm going to be really free. I'm free! By God, I'm free! And free he was. After six weeks of intense training, the experiment had paid off. Morris and Buddy had become quite popular at the local cafe, where Morris was up to three beers a day before the duo had to catch their cable car home. Morris was ready to go all in. He wanted to dedicate his life to bringing guide dogs to other blind people and giving them the incredible independence he'd found with Buddy. Dogs would show them a path to dignity and living life without charity. He hoped that Dorothy, George and Jack would help him. They told him to stop right there and hold his seeing-eye dogs. There were a few problems that had to be resolved before any more blind people came to Switzerland or fortunate field dogs went to America. First, acceptance. How would Americans react to large dogs in restaurants and on trains? And sure, Buddy and Morris could get around a small Swiss mountain town, but would they be able to navigate large cities like Nashville, or, to dream big, New York City? And most importantly, who would pay for all this? Dog food wasn't cheap, and neither were the spiffy U-shaped harnesses needed for guidance, not to mention trainer salaries, facilities, vet bills. Dorothy issued a challenge. If Morris and Buddy could prove to America that service dogs 1. could help blind people safely navigate large cities and 2. would not disrupt the peace in public spaces she'd fund an American guide dog school to the tune of $10,000 worth around $150,000 today. Additionally, Dorothy would transform the mission of fortunate fields from training police and military dogs to exclusively training seeing-eye dogs. Morris was confident he could change people's minds and hearts, opening them as Buddy had opened his. He proved to all of America that with Buddy at his side, he was no different from any other man. At the dawn of summer, Morris Frank and Buddy set sail back to the US the future of the blind community sailed with them. June 11th, 1928. Morris Frank and his guide dog Buddy docked in New York Harbor after spending almost two months training together in Switzerland. Like many immigrants, Buddy came to America in hopes of building a better life. But this wasn't just a better life for herself or for Morris. They were paving the way for a better life for all blind Americans. It was a lot of pressure for one German shepherd. But Buddy didn't seem to mind. She stuck to her duties, guiding, cuddling, and even keeping Morris from losing his wallet aboard the ship. But when the American reporters waiting at the harbour looked at Buddy, all they saw was a dog and not even a good dog. As a German Shepherd in 1928, she had a reputation as 1. A vicious police dog you did not want around your family and 2. A German export in a time when anti-German sentiment was only on the rise. And in Morris, they saw a feeble, pathetic, second-class citizen who would always be a burden on others. They saw the Morris Frank who had left New York City. Not the one. Who sailed back. Morris anticipated reporters, but he didn't expect to be pressed for a scoop before he even left the ship. One savvy newsman managed to get to him early and start putting together a feature article for Morris's cabin. By the time Morris got through customs, the story of his transcontinental odyssey to get a dog had spread across America every paper wanted to do a human interest piece on the off chance that the experiment had worked. And they were all waiting to talk to him. As Morris and Buddy passed the crowd, one of the skeptics yelled, challenging the pair to cross the street. Prove the dog works! Easy, Morris figured. He wasn't a man to turn down a challenge. And they'd crossed plenty of streets in Switzerland. But they hadn't crossed New York City's West Street. In 1928, it was the roughest street in New York City, perhaps the roughest in America. Its multiple lanes ran along the Hudson, populated by speeding 10-ton trucks and angry cabbies. It did not have a single traffic light. Maurice Frank knew none of this. And Buddy seemed unperturbed. The reporters had their cameras at the ready, tripods and flashbulbs prepared, snapping early shots of Morris with his sharp suit and slicked back hair. Beside him, Buddy wore her shiny U-shaped leather harness. Her ears were alert, but she panted happily in the New York heat. Morris took a deep breath more nervous about how he looked in the photographs than this quick walk. Buddy, forward. Morris took a few steps before he realized what he'd agreed to. He thought he'd been hearing the whole city's worth of traffic, but it was all from this single street. Buddy halted, cautious herself. Morris felt the air sucked away from him as the hot truck bulleted past. Once again, Buddy had saved him. But they were still in the middle of the road. Morris thought of turning back, but Buddy kept moving. He had to follow her. He trusted her, right? A few more steps. Buddy stopped again and started backing up. Drivers yelled at them, horns were honking, the dog was going the wrong way. Another car zipped past, and Buddy started walking again. She was doing her job better than anyone expected her to. Still quivering from the near misses, Morris knew what he had to do. He said, I lost all sense of direction and surrendered myself entirely to the dog. Buddy continued, Morris beside her. She paused to wait for gaps in traffic, ignoring the angry New Yorkers and speeding cars. After three minutes, she slowed but didn't stop. Morris knew what this meant. They'd reached a curb. She was preparing him for the step. Morris took it in stride. They'd done it. Safe on the sidewalk, Morris leaned down, hugged Buddy, and told her what a good girl she was. The no longer sceptical reporter thanked him for the demonstration. It's worth noting that the reporter in question crossed West Street... In a cab. When he arrived in Nashville, Morris sent Dorothy a single word telegram Success. In reply, she came to America, setting up the school she promised. America's first guide dog school was established in Nashville on January 29, 1929. It was called The Seeing Eye, after the title of Dorothy's article and like many dogs Buddy earned a nickname the First Lady of the Seeing Eye. The West Street crossing was followed by hundreds of other street crossings, train rides and visits to restaurants, hotels and barber shops. In one trip Morris and Buddy travelled 50,000 miles visiting every American military hospital. Over the next few decades, Morris Frank and Jack Humphrey both toured the American lecture circuit, preaching the benefits of seeing-eye dogs and how to train them. Buddy met and befriended hundreds of people, including presidents Calvin Coolidge and Herbert Hoover. She was so beloved, she even placed in a dog show, despite being overweight from all the treats provided by her admirers and she wasn't the only one with an admirer. Thanks to Buddy, Morris was finally able to date on his own. He fell in love with a woman named Lois, and soon married her. For a decade, Buddy served Morris without fail. In a very lassie move, she even once saved him from falling into an open elevator shaft. But Buddy didn't just literally save Morris's life. She restored his passion, dignity and purpose. Morris wrote that before Buddy, people were afraid to talk to him. But with Buddy at his side, he was instantly approachable. Even strangers were quick to say how cute his dog was, asked to meet her and strike up a conversation the fluffy German Shepherd opened up Morris's world. With Buddy as a shining example, seeing-eye dogs were soon accepted across America. Buddy paved the way for guide dogs to serve people with other disabilities and the eventual legislation of the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, which legally protects people and their guide dogs from the type of discrimination Morris Frank faced. But the tragedy of dogs is that their lives are so much shorter than ours. And in that, Buddy was no exception. When she died on May 23, 1938, her obituary ran in the New York Times. Luckily for Morris, the Seeing Eye Incorporated was immensely successful and he was able to get another guide dog. Morris Frank was served by five more seeing-eye dogs throughout his life, each named after the original Buddy. Out of respect, no seeing-eye dog since has been given the name Buddy. When Morris died in 1980, the name was permanently retired. Since 1929, Over 17,000 dogs have been trained and successfully served as guide dogs for the blind, now training out of the Seeing Eyes School in Morristown, New Jersey. Outside the school, there's a bronze statue of Buddy and Morris walking together. Their expressions encapsulate what Buddy gave to Morris – confidence, companionship, freedom, and one foot. Stepping towards a brighter future. Thanks for listening to Dog Tales. Every dog has his day, and our day is Monday's. We'll be back then with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Dog Tales and all other podcast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Dog Tales, for free from your phone, desktop or smart speaker. To stream Dog Tales on Spotify, just open the app and type dog Tales in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a 5-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Join us next time for another good story about a good dog. Dog Tales was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein and Carly Madden. This episode of Dog Tales was written by Maggie Admire. I'm Alastair Murden.